This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Scott Ian discusses I'm the Man, his memoir about his years performing with Anthrax. Then Heidi McDonald explores gender and representation in comics. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. We have a new number one in fiction. It's Leaving Time by Jody Picoult. Very nice sales, about 37,000 copies in its first week, uh, to put it at the top of the hardcover fiction list. Uh, This novel, the PW Review, says it explores grief, memory, and motherhood through the unlikely lens of elephant behavior. So uh, these concepts of memory, particularly, are are sort of associated with elephants in a a particular way. And so uh, it's nice to see that made tangible. Um, it's about a, a girl whose mother uh, worked as a researcher at a, in an elephant sanctuary um, and then disappeared. And 10 years later, the girl is now a teenager and ready to launch a search. Um, and she uh, enlists a whole bunch of outside assistance, including from a former psychic uh, and an alcoholic ex-police detective. So uh, there, there's, uh, there's plenty going on here. Uh, longtime fans of Picot will recognize some of her stock characters. There's a precocious, sassy teenager, a distant philosophical mother, and the curmudgeonly surrogate father figure. Um, and the trademark twist ending may be her strangest one to date. Hmm. Uh, but we also say that when she diverges from her usual formula, her storytelling skills are most evident, and the pachyderms are as complex as the humans. Oh, wow. So this might be the first that she's written about animals as a um, main character? Yeah, it's uh, it's an exciting departure. So that's at number one. Great. Um, and then uh, going a little bit further down the list, last week I mentioned it's the season for Christmas books. We have another one at number nine, Winter Street by Ellen Hildebrand. Uh, it's a Christmas novel set on Nantucket. It's mm-hmm. about family, warmth, togetherness, all of those Christmassy things. Uh, and then a little bit further down at number 13, something quite different. This is Ruth's Journey, the authorized story of Mammy from Gone with the Wind by Donald McCaig. Mm. Uh, and uh, it's the first ever authorized prequel to Gone with the Wind. Uh, McCaig was the uh, author of Rhett Butler's People, and so uh, a good choice for this one. And he recounts the life of Mammy, one of literature's mm-hmm. greatest supporting characters, as the, the promo copy says, from her days as a slave girl until the outbreak of the Civil War. So um, this is one of those things that could be done either very well or very badly. Uh, PW hasn't reviewed it, so I couldn't tell you which it is, Mm -hmm. but certainly uh, there's enough interest in it to put it up there on the list at number 13. 
Uh, and finally, just going down a little bit further is at number 16 is The Narrow Road to the Deep North by Richard Flanagan. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a best-selling Australian writer. Uh, our review calls this a supple meditation on memory, trauma, and empathy that is also a sublime war novel uh, recounting some uh, stories about World War II. Uh, and most of the novel is about uh, this now in the present day, 77-year-old man's uh, memories of his experiences as a prisoner of war Mm -hmm. during World War II, and uh, he was captured by the Japanese after the fall of Singapore. So uh, it's it's an interesting look back um, through the the lens of someone contemporary retelling the story of his life. Uh, We say pellucid, epic, and sincerely touching in its treatment of death. This is a powerful novel. Uh, they announced a 50,000 copy first printing, and so far they've sold 3,400 of those copies. So hopefully uh, the, the rest will bump. follow. Right, exactly. Sure. <laughs> What's sure. in nonfiction? Let's see. We have at number three, we have a memoir by the star of Princess Bride, which was released, what is it, 20 years ago? 30? I, I, <laughs> It's definitely more than 20, because uh, yeah. I, I remember there being a 20th anniversary 30. Uh, yeah. DVD. Yeah, That's yeah. right. Oh, right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Carrie Elwes. 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 You know what? This whole time, I've never known how to pronounce his name. But then again, <laughs> I've only seen the movie once. That was a long time ago. As You Wish is the title, Inconceivable Tales from the Making of the Princess Bride. Uh, it's written with uh, Joe uh, Layden, and uh, he plays the character of Wesley, and at 23, he was one of the youngest ones uh, on the uh, on the set, pretty much unknown, um, and the book is filled with stories about, and even some recollections of, of uh, Rob Reiner and uh, several of the actors, William Goldman, I'm sorry, the writer William Goldman, and he recounts actually, basically, the making of this uh, movie, and uh, apparently had a, um, a book signing at the Barnes and Noble in New York City, uh, which I am uh, wouldn't be surprised if it turned out lots and lots and lots of people. But this is at number three, um, which is a pretty good uh, debut number for him. I I, th- I think cult classic cannot cannot even understate. Uh, how popular this movie still is certainly among all of my nerdy friends i just watched it again i have the yeah. anniversary dvd um and uh it, it's it's really it's an enduring book even the special effects hold up well because so much of it was done with uh, you know real uh, solid stuff you know, with puppetry with with uh, flame effects right. um and and that way there's right. no cgi no no uh, old fashioned animation to uh, look kind of tarnished right. now that we're so used to modern effects. So um, it's really it's an impressive piece of work, even decades later. <laughs> Your favorite scene was my favorite scene is the the fight at the cliffs of insanity, yeah. um, which is where Elvis really shows his chops. I mean, yeah, you know, when when you're when you're playing opposite Mandy Patinkin, that's yeah. got to be a challenge. And when right. you're doing it with a sword in your hand, running up and down the cliffs and uh, you know performing acrobatics uh, right. and uh, reciting clever lines all at the same time it's really um i'm i'm i mean ellis has had a couple of good roles since then but i'm surprised this didn't do more to catapult him to stardom it was a really impressive performance yeah we didn't see much of him after that robin hood men in tights oh right right (laughs) but it's amazing that he's had such staying power uh, that that this book is at number three. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's not he's not a daily uh, 
household name. I mean, no, not at all. But he has a big fan cult. I, I think that's absolutely yeah. correct. So uh, at number eight, uh, we have num- another uh, memoir of sorts, uh, Neil Patrick Harris, Choose Your Own Autobiography. Uh, and this one seems to be a bit of a gimmicky one where he is uh, telling the story. Uh, it seems to be in the second person where you are doing this. You were born in New Mexico. And he uh, he takes you through his, uh, his career, but it's as if you are doing it. You get your big break in acting camp. And at what point uh, you decide, whether or not to try out for Doogie Howser. So um, say what you will. It's at number eight. Um, pretty decent spot for a memoir. And at number 10, um, Yotam Adelengi uh, with plenty more. He had a, uh, this is Chef Cookbook from 10 Speed Press. Uh, a couple of years ago, he had a what many believe to be was a surprise bestseller. Um, uh, Israeli-born um has a restaurant at several restaurants in the UK. Uh, and this is a follow-up to his previous bestseller called plenty. And, um, uh, he, he talks, uh, he's got many different, uh, recipes. He, uh, dazzles with his use of obscure vegetation, um, and he creates highly, they're highly creative dishes. I mean, uh, they're really wonderful, um, vegetables and, um, it's at number 10. And interestingly, the Thug Kitchen, which we talked about last week is at, which was at number three, I believe, uh, is now actually at number nine. And that got a lot of controversy because it came about there was the uh the the, the writers and it started out as a blog uh, called thug kitchen was unknown we had, people had no idea who it, who who they were and people thought that it was perhaps you know using the thug using the thug uh uh imagery or at least kind of uh wording that it might have been an african american young african american male and it turns out it was a young uh, uh white couple from los angeles oh dear. and um so there's been a big backlash but that yeah, doesn't sure. seem to have hurt sales all that much so and uh that's basically what we have on our nonfiction bestseller list well i'm rose fox and i'm mark rotella And this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Scott Ian tells us how he became that guy from Anthrax. We'll be right back. This is Joyce Carol Oates, editor of Prison Noir, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Scott Ian on the line. His new book is I'm the Man, the Story of That Guy from Anthrax. Hi, Scott. So glad you could join us. Oh, thank you. All right. So tell us, how is it that you're that guy from Anthrax? Um, well, the original uh, original title I had for the book was going to be that guy from that band because <laughs> that's what I actually get fed up with quite a bit when I'm in airports or traveling or wherever. People kind of will stare at me and point and be like, "Aren't you that guy from that band?" And my answer is always, "I don't know because <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I could be. I don't know what band. You know. Of course, I generally have an idea." You know, they have an idea, but I, I just really don't feel it's my responsibility, and usually I'm trying to catch a plane. So. Right, right, um, exactly. But uh, Capo really wanted um, Anthrax in the title of the book, so that's how it became that guy from Anthrax. <laughs> well, you're, you're a little more Googleable that way. Um, yeah. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with that band, how would you describe Anthrax? 
You know what? My answer for that's going to be go ahead and Google it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I don't have uh, I don't have time to give you a thirty three year history of of heavy metal. So um, I, I would say go on iTunes, buy Worship Music, our last album, and that will give you a really good description of my band. Excellent. All right. All right so you grew up a nice Jewish boy in Queens. You were uh, kind of a nerd. What happened? Oh, nothing. I'm still a nerd. <laughs> no, nothing happened. Nothing's changed. I'm just an older nerd, and I have more things to nerd out about. What are some of the things you're nerding out about these days? What are some of the things I'm nerding out about these days? I uh, saw the trailer for Avengers 2 yesterday. Oh, that was exciting. Ner- All of my friends I'm nerding are out, about it. I'm nerding out about that a little bit. It was the ballerinas, um, right? You're into the ballerinas. Oh, you know what? I, th- I'm, I must have missed that. <laughs> I watched it late last night. Now I see, now I have to watch it again. Absolutely. <laughs> What's up with the ballerinas? Yeah, I'm already nerding out about that, especially over the fact that um, they show those scenes of, I guess it's the Tony Stark Hulkbuster armor or something like mm-hmm. that, and um, I just have a huge problem with the fact that Hulk throws a punch and the Hulkbuster armor thing actually is able to stop Hulk's punch, at least by the way it looks in in that um, in that clip. And me, as a nerdy Hulk fan, I I straight up call bull on that. <laughs> <laughs> and for our listeners out there right now, if you hear anything in the background, that is uh, Scott Ian's three-year-old. Uh, uh, how's it being a dad? Yeah, not just my three-year-old. There's an air conditioning guy here and there's <laughs> landscaping people. And uh, it's, um, you know, it's sometimes it's tough to get interviews done, but it's the way it's got to get done. Yeah. But that sounds like domestic bliss. Are, 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 you, are you touring to support the book or are you just getting to enjoy some time at home? Well, I was in New York for a week last week doing um, uh, doing book promo all last week, and um, this week I'm home doing book promo by phone all week. And I, um, I did a bunch of signings back east as well. There won't be any like proper book tour signings until Anthrax is back out on tour, and then they're going to plan a whole bunch of signings based around that and what cities I'm in and all that. Clever. All right. So let's get a little back into the, the history of you and the band. Um, you, you saw Kiss on TV, not live, but uh, that was sort of the moment when you realized that, that was what you wanted to be doing. Uh, how old were you when that, when that revelation hit? That's actually not right. It's, it's oh, when I saw them live. It was when you saw them live. Ah. All right. Yeah, I saw them at Madison Square Garden in 77, and it was after that show is when I uh, basically I walked out of that show on a path that I I, I never strayed from. Mm-hmm. So uh, what was it about the band that so intrigued you that made you go, this is what I want to do? Um, well, I was into music and comics and horror, and Kiss was all of that. In one bloody fiery package, so you know they 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 pretty much were the essence of everything I loved when as a thirteen year old um you know, and it wasn't necessarily I knew I was going to be in a band like kiss that wasn't that wasn't the plan. it was just the idea of I just wanted to be in a band that's what I wanted to be able to do with my life so when did you start uh playing guitar uh probably around eight or nine, something like that and what was your first guitar? Oh, just some acoustic thing that was sitting around the house. Yeah. And um, tell us about how Anthrax came to be. 
Well, it's all in the book. <laughs> what, right. Well, the, as a radio interview, what, what gives what gives anyone a reason to uh, to actually buy something if it, they could just hear it for free on Publisher Weekly Radio? <laughs> we just want to give people a little bit of a teaser, like uh, like that Avengers trailer, you know. That's what I should do. I should cut together a two and a half minute interview that everybody could I wish it was that easy <laughs> somehow you're supposed to have a new fresh take on this 73 times a day um, yeah I'm not being crabby at you guys it's just no, uh, I I'm know. new it's to hard. the book I'm totally new to the book publishing world and how all this works and it's, a lot of it is so alien to me as compared to how these things work, making records and then promoting albums. And there's been a bit of a push and pull between, you know, how I'm used to doing things. But I've been I've been a really good boy. So um, I'm doing everything they asked me to do. But, um, you know, I, what, I started playing guitar eight or nine. I took lessons for about six months. And, um, and then I asked my parents for an electric guitar because um, I didn't want to play on acoustic anymore. And... Uh, my teacher said, hey, he's, you know, he's learning. He's taking it seriously. He gets it. Uh, I don't think electric guitar is going to sit in the corner and collect dust. So, um, you know, I think it would be a good investment. And uh, that was enough to convince my dad to, you know, take me out. And we went and bought a used, I think it was a 1972 Fender Kelly Deluxe. Mm. I'm, I'm curious now, what is different about the, the book promo from the record promo? Because here in We the don't have enough time in the month for me to go into that, so forget it. Don't, uh, even, don't even bother with that question. Because uh, you know, here in the book the, world, the, the there's... The book publishing world is like 1965. <laughs> like, I swear to God, the way a lot of things are done is, is the way I was doing things 30 years ago, and certain things have kind of moved forward for better or worse mm -hmm. maybe books are smarter that that they haven't moved completely into the digital age yet and one it has to do with a lot of this stuff and uh uh, you know, maybe it's better. I, I don't know how it works in the book world. Are people stealing books online like they steal records online as well? You know, I mean, I, I don't know. But uh, just as far as the way things work, it's just it's just a different it's kind of a different planet. Yeah, because there's a lot of conversation going on in, in publishing right now about um, self-publishing and indie books and people trying to compare them to indie records. And it just seems like a completely different ballgame. Yeah, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure. I mean, even the fact that, like, just one of the things that, that completely drove me nuts, uh, which I haven't really, your guys are Publishers Weekly, so what better place to talk about it? I, I don't think some goofy morning radio show in Wichita would care about this, but <laughs> um, it, just the fact that when they, you know, they, they send out advanced copies of the book for review purposes and for promotion and press, so... That that copy that they send out, you know, is is basically based off like a first draft of the book that has tons of mistakes, tons of changes that still need to be made, like absolutely not the finished version of the book, at which I didn't know how that worked. So like I get this advanced reading copy. And I'm like, wait a minute, all this is different. These things need to be changed. This is wrong. There's a billion typos. Like, what is this? They're like, well, this is we need to get these done now for you know, long lead press and all that kind of stuff. And I understand that. I know how it works. But what drove me crazy is it's like, 
you know, in in the music business, you would never ever think of sending out an unfinished album for people to review. Right. In a million yep. years, not one band or artist would ever send out send out like an unmixed record, or you know, <laughs> sure. like or just in some way unfinished. It's just you would never ever ever do that. And this was even more personal to me because this is my book. Right. It's not even a band thing. It was like my thing. I'm like. Wait, so people are reading an unfinished copy that I've already revised twice mm -hmm. since, like, and there's all these mistakes. It made me insane. Like, it, it drove me nuts. I'm like, I don't understand. Why Why can't you just send the PDF file out of this that's a finished one? You would, It would save you all the costs of even printing these things. You know, the fact that they spend money to print these soft cover advanced reading copies and <laughs> when they could just send the PDF file and... Then they told me, well, if we send PDFs to everybody, then there's a good chance of the book ending up on the Internet and people downloading it for free. I'm like, okay, I get that too. But, but So basically, like I said, there's a lot of learning for me. But just the fact that people read an unfinished book, made, it made me insane. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, Scott, putting it that way, especially comparing it to what you just said, uh, you know, putting out a record, no one would put out a record even for review, you know, uh, that isn't finished, that isn't quite there. And, and this is just the way the publishing industry has been done. And I think you had said it's like the 1960s. Well, that's what, because that's the answer I got back. Well, this is the way it's always been done. Right. Yep. Yep. Granted, and they, granted, they said, this is the way it's always been done. Um, not saying that this is correct, and maybe someday the the publishing business will move 100% into the digital age, but I guess, you know, it's like the ice age that moves that slow. So, um, And, hey, maybe, like I said, maybe publishing is doing it the right way because if it's keeping people from stealing books online the way records are stolen online, then maybe it is the way to do it. All they need to do is figure out a better way to, to get advanced copies out that aren't unfinished versions of, of what you're trying to do. But um, if books aren't being stolen you know, online, then that's obviously a good thing. Mm -hmm. oh, there, there are problems yeah. with privacy, but it, or with piracy, rather. But it's, uh, it's, I think it's not like music. Again, it's, it's two, different, two different worlds. Right, gotcha. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Scott Ian, author of I'm the Man, and enjoying his uh, fascinating take as an outsider in the book world uh, where we are insiders. It's, it's always fun to see it from other perspectives because, you know, we're, we're mired in the stuff. We're swimming in advanced copies. Um, we, we, get, we get hundreds of them every week. So yeah. uh, we're just kind of used to... Do you ever read an advanced copy and then actually read... Uh, like a finished book afterwards and see, you know, if there were differences. Oh, and there yeah, always are. Yeah, there are. Oh, and, okay. and basically, I, know, but, I mean, do you personally do it? Do you actually read finished copies after? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting for, because we're, and it's because we're a pre-publication magazine and there, there are a few out there that, uh, just, just how long it takes to, to print and to produce a book. Uh, when we send it out to reviewers, they know that there are things that are going to, to change and we don't, we usually don't quote directly, but, uh, but still, uh, your, your point is, is well taken. So, but right. I wanted to ask, so, so we're talking about, as you said, this is your book. It's not anthrax. It's not uh, a, a, you know, a, a, you know, huge production effort like, like it is to produce a record, though it is a big production effort uh, for, for book publishers. Now, tell us why you decided to write a memoir, and, and why now? Um, there really was no reason. <laughs> yeah. um, I wasn't looking to write a book. Um, I, I, I started writing down a lot of stories uh, about three years ago. I just started making notes for myself whenever, whether I'd be doing an interview or just having a conversation with my wife or friends or whatever. Um, anytime something would come up, a story from the past or something I couldn't remember or whatever it might have been, I would make like a note in my phone. And then when I would have some time, I would I would write out that whole story. I would just like take an hour and, and write it. And uh, mainly just so I would have the stuff, so I wouldn't forget it, so I just wouldn't lose that information. And uh, I, I was doing that for months and months, and uh, a lot of that was actually really enjoyable for me to kind of relive most of these, most of the, at the time, these were like, whatever, just funny stories. or um, So it was, I was kind of having a good time doing that. And then not long after that, or while that was going on, in November of 2012, I went to London and did this one-off show uh, where I just basically stood on stage and told stories for two hours. And hmm. um, uh, and coming out of that show, I had so much fun doing that and getting to see how a live audience reacted to a lot of these stories. Um, then I, I booked a whole tour, and I did like a U.K. tour, and I did it in Australia, and I did a tour in the States, and, and uh, I was having so much fun doing that. And then realizing also that I've got so many of these stories written out and I've been telling so many of these stories live in front of people and people seem to be really enjoying this stuff. Um, I think I've got a lot of the workload done for a book at this point because five years ago, let's say, when I first got asked about doing a book and I, I passed because I felt like everyone had a book coming out, like everyone, every rock guy was writing a book all of a sudden. And uh, as well as... Um, I just wasn't going to commit to the work. There was no way I could, in good faith, commit to a publisher after they pay me money and then actually go write it because, you know, it would have been just too much of a workload for me. So I passed, and I passed a few times on doing a book. But then I found myself in, like, 2013 with a lot of work done, uh, you know, and re- and then also realizing that people were really interested, it seemed to be me, in my life. So um, that was really the catalyst to then say, okay, you know, I think I could actually do a book, and, you know, that, that really got the ball rolling. So you, you mentioned that that started about three years ago, um, and you also mentioned that you had your three-year-old running around, and so I was wondering if some of this is about having a, a, a legacy or, or a record for the next generation. No. No, I mean, I, I hadn't really thought of that at all. It was just, I felt like there was a story to tell. I felt like there was a narrative. You know, I, I didn't want a book of just a whole bunch of chapters of random stories, um, which I very well could have done. I could have written 30 chapters of, you know, funny stories uh, of the last 30-odd years. Um, but that's not the book I wanted to do. I really wanted, you know, a proper narrative. 
um, of my life from birth until 2011 when I decided that would be, that's where we would end the story for now. So, um, no, it was just, I, I felt like there was a story to tell and I had, that's what I had been doing a lot. I was out there telling stories. So, um, it was just another way to, to tell the story and really flesh it out. So uh, you you were uh, a lyricist, among other things, for Anthrax, and obviously writing down these stories is going to be pretty different from writing lyrics, uh, but a lot of the writers we've talked to say that uh, there's always some kind of cross-disciplinary stuff going on, that maybe if you're just used to sitting down and picking up a pen or sitting down at the keyboard, it's easier to transfer that to other types of writing. Was that your experience with this? Writing lyrics is much harder, I think. Um, because it's so unnatural. I, like I've been writing, not, I've been writing lyrics since 1984. Let's say 84, 85, when I first started writing lyrics uh, in the band. Um, and I've been writing stuff, stories, and other things even longer than that. You know, since junior high, and then even you know through the 80s, 90s, getting. Um, uh, 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 what do you call it? Like in the New York, like op-ed pieces, editorial pieces published in like Billboard, or I would write story, like I would write for like rock magazines once in a while. They would ask me to write about something, or so I knew I could write. Like I, I knew I had the ability to tell tell a story. Um, you know, in in not, I, I see. Uh, this, is, this is why I have to write things down because I have no <laughs> vocabulary anymore. Um, I knew I was able to tell a story by writing it. So going into like even writing a book um, or just writing out, you know, long essays of stories that, you know, of my past, I knew I already had a writer's voice for that. Uh, whereas with lyrics, it's so weird because uh, obviously I know how to write lyrics. I've been doing it for long enough. I know how to do it. But it, to me, it's the most unnatural thing because my natural instinct is to tell a story. Mm-hmm. And um, but then you have to tell that story and fit it into verses and choruses. And you generally a lot of times you have to find things that rhyme when you're writing a story. I, I, I normally I don't speak in a rhyming voice. I don't write my stories in a rhyming voice, but then you write lyrics and you got to be able to get your point across and really tell a tale. Yet at the same time, it has to fit a certain structure and you have to rhyme a lot of the time. Um, it's it's just such an unnatural and weird way for me to do it because I feel like I come from the other place first. Um, so as much as I, of course, enjoy writing lyrics, it's still always just such an alien thing to me because I'll write out a whole story of a song uh, about what the song is, and then I have to break that down into lyric format. Same like when I wrote for, uh, my comic for DC, and I'm currently doing it again right now. Right. I write a whole story, beginning, middle, end, and then you have to break that down to comic book panels and into dialogue. So that's even another you know, way of doing it, which uh, I, I'm getting better at. It's still kind of unnatural to me writing dialogue, but I'm getting better at that as well. And what was the process for you like with, with writing this book? I mean, sometimes, you, you know, as, as a writer, you sit down, you, you, you think about something, and then it triggers, you, you write something, and it triggers more memories and other things. Did that happen with you? It was a combination. Like I said, I had already written down at least a dozen probably tales of my past, right. you know, where I would just... I would just spend the time and write out a whole story and it would be in a Word document and I would file it on my laptop. And then when I finally decided that I I felt like doing a book was actually a possibility, 
that's when I got a hold of John Wiederhorn because John and I have worked together a bunch in the past, mostly him interviewing me, but me really enjoying those interviews. Um, and uh, I got a hold of John because John wrote Louder Than Hell and John wrote the Al Jorgensen book, and I really respect right. John as a human. And uh, and I said, hey, you know, I've got this idea. What, what would you think about working on a book together? And that, you know, that process. So we had kind of like the stuff I was writing and then the process of working with John was he came out to my house and we basically spent about a week getting drunk and the and his uh, you know recorder on his iPhone whatever just recording and me talking for a hundred hours and then him taking a lot of that and putting that into some kind of a structure fitting in with all the story then and being able to take all the stories I had already written and then somehow the two of us turning that into uh, like a real narrative that sounds like quite a process. You, you, you'd you mentioned writing for comics. I didn't realize you were doing that. Is that like a nerd dream come true? Yeah, I wrote a couple of years ago, I wrote a, a, a Lobo story, a Lobo series for DC, and um, it was one of their characters. And I'm currently working on The Demon right now for them. Um, yeah, it is totally a nerd dream come true. When I first had a meeting at DC a few years back, and I'm sitting there with a bunch of these people in an office and I kept turning around to see if like Grant Morrison or <laughs> some other writer was standing behind me and they were actually talking to him because I, I was just kind of amazed that they actually wanted me to do something you know and write a comic book so um, yeah it, was, it definitely was a dream come true granted I, I didn't know what the hell I was doing going into it or even thinking I could do it. I, I had a lot of agonizing over that, but uh, I had the story. That's what counted. My, the hard part for me was then once I started getting the art and then it was breaking down in the dialogue because I've never done that in my life and really had no idea how to do it. And it was a lot of working with my editor there who, uh, you know, finally the, the, the magic words that he said to me were just write the character like you would speak it. You already have the story. You've got the hard part done. It just now just put the words in his mouth the way you would say them and that kind of opened that door for me and um and helped me a lot and all of a sudden where i as i spent like three months procrastinating um within like two days i had half the half you know i had like 78 pages written or something and uh and it just started to flow so it was just a case of really understanding how to how to break it down from a story into into panels so um, before we wrap up here, uh, I'm sure, again, you get a lot of people asking you this, um, but uh, if there's one particular anecdote from your, from your years with Anthrax um, that, uh, you know, about a time that really changed you, something that uh, shook you up that same way or a similar realization, uh, do you have one you can pull out for us? Well, like it, uh, we, we touched on it earlier, that that KISS concert in 77 for me, like I said, um, I was 13 and I walked out of Madison Square Garden and I never strayed from that path. I said, this is what I'm doing with my life. And I never, ever, ever, you know, just thought about doing anything different. And I never took no for an answer. And, and uh, I never let anything stand in my way. And I think for a 13 year old, that's, you know, that's a pretty big decision to be making at that time in your life. But uh, it just, there's something about being in that room and that energy um, and just feeling that uh, and knowing that this is this is what I, I have to do. This is what I have to do. And I had no idea. It's not like I, even when I started college in 1981, it's not like I had a plan B. It's, it's all I was going to do. So um, 
you know, for me, and, and I think the book obviously then explains how I did that. You know, it wasn't as simple as just, I'm going to be in a band, and then that's what I did, and look how it turned out for me. You could do it too, you know. <laughs> Buy my book, All the Secrets Are In It. Um, you know, but in a sense, you know, there is no secret. There's, it's, you know, I'm, I'm not selling, you know, snake oil. It's just I do explain all the, all the chapters are in there of how I went from A to B and all the hard work it took and, you know, and all of that and the luck and the timing and everything else that goes with anything like this, whether you're trying to be in a band or an actor or whatever it is. I mean, there's so many factors that have to line up. Uh, for something like this to happen and and you know somehow I was just able to you know steer the this tiny little boat and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger over the years. Well, I think people will certainly find that inspirational, even if you don't have uh, the the thirteen secrets to heavy metal success <laughs> hiding away in there. That's what I should have called it. How to, how to how to how to start, you know, how to make a successful band and then just totally BS people. <laughs> you too can be the man. I'll be the Tony Robbins of heavy metal. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> We've been talking with Scott Ian. You can find his book, I'm the Man, the story of that guy from Anthrax in stores right now. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Heidi McDonald talks about cultural upheavals in the comics world, so stay tuned. Hi, this is Michaela the Prince, and I'm the author of Taking Flight, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today Comics Reviews editor Heidi McDonald is here to tell us all about some hot fall titles as well as some interesting <laughs> upheavals that are happening in the comics world. Well, hi, Heidi. Hi, guys. How's Hello. it going? Hello. Yeah. Nice yeah, it's great to be back. Um, yeah, it's great times, you know, good good times in comics overall. Uh, I mean, things, it's a golden age. Everybody keeps saying that, and just amazing books just keep coming out. And Yep. Um, you know, so much, so much good stuff com- coming out right now. Um, and, uh, and we've got some features on comics and graphic novels yeah. coming up, right? Yeah, we so. have a gift guide coming up with some uh, uh, amazingly beautiful books. I mean, everybody's putting out these oversized original art editions now that take the art and just photograph it as it is, and mm. it's the actual size of the art. And I mean, they cost a hundred dollars, but um, you want to get them when they come out because the secondary market is a lot more than a hundred dollars. I'm but, sure. Uh, yeah, <laughs> oh, wow. you know, artists like Jack Kirby, Walt Simonson. Um, you know, some of the greats, Mignola, uh, just amazing stuff. So, uh, but there's some really good books uh, I wanted to mention. Um, it's really been the year of the French comic. Uh, I, think, I was noticing that. I was right? looking, because uh, I was looking down the, the gift list, and mm-hmm. I was like, wow, they're, they're, I'm putting in a lot of accents here as yes. I'm going through and copy editing it. Yes. Oh, what is, so is this something new for the French, or, or is this, I mean, I know the, the, there was the, in French, though not French, Tintin. Yes, uh, yes, yes. And that's, they, they have a reissue, they have a new book coming out of that. Well, uh, Tintin, as some yeah. call it. Tintin. Uh, is a, the protean European comic. Right. And it's probably what everybody thinks of when they think of European, French, Franco-Belgian comics, as you yourself did. But, um, and uh, there's kind of, in the U.S. comics market, I think there's been a little bit of a resistance to the material, just because it seems old-fashioned, because mm-hmm. everybody thinks of Tintin. Uh, but, you know, that's like thinking of 
Sleeping Beauty as the uh, up-to-date, you know, animation standard. As great a movie as it is, we've come, you know, we've come further. <laughs> we have Maleficent now. Yes, right, exactly. Uh, but but a lot of French comics are uh, amazingly. They've always had great art, but the stories are really beginning to resonate uh, with a lot of American readers. I think it's probably the manga influence in mm. European comics a little bit. Uh, a book that came out earlier this year that we might have mentioned uh, is Beautiful Darkness, which uh, is by the Alan Moore of France, uh, Fabien Velman, and uh, an art team by name uh, Carousette. And it's about, it's like Lord of the Rings meet or no excuse me lord of the flies meets sleeping beauty it's about some fairies who have to escape their home in a little girl when she dies mm. <laughs> escaping wow. the rotting body of a little girl and that's just the splash page so <laughs> and so what is the illustr for this one for for example what do the illustrations look well like? it's drawn in a beautiful fairy tale style it is Abs- yeah i mean full it's color a, yeah absolutely full color it looks like the most gorgeous fairy tale kids book you ever saw except that it's uh lord of the flies with little cute fairies uh descending down the ladder of uh humanity into disrepair um so uh i know it's on our best books list for the (laughs) fall actually but a new book just came out well it's new to america it's called peter pan it's by an artist named loiselle uh it sold a million copies in french and uh, it originally came out as a serial, but an English publisher named Soaring Penguin is putting it out as a collection. And this is, again, drawn in the most amazing art style. Every panel is different. You know, I mean, a lot of times you'll see a book where they take shortcuts, which is fine. But I mean, every drawing mm. is like a unique creation, like, like you know, Arthur Rackham's fairy tale. And it's a prequel to Peter Pan that kind of imagines him coming out of an Oliver Twist-like past as a homeless boy. Wow. His mother is an alcoholic. He's trying to deal with that. You know, Tinkerbell is kind of this this sexual figure. Hmm. Uh, and she's incredibly well-known in France. Like, like she's become an icon. This book is so well-known in France. Wow. And uh, it's just another savage tale that reimagines everything that happened before Peter Pan in a very dark and beautiful way. And uh, this book is just coming out. It hasn't come out yet in this English edition, but uh, I just got the galley. Yay, me! And uh, I expect it to get quite a bit of comment when it comes out. I think it's really going to... um I think it's really going to touch on touch some nerves. Mm-hmm. Wow! And so is the uh, the fairies a, a theme in in the uh, French uh, 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 well, comics world? Well, you know, I think it is a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think that fairy tale. I mean, both of these books do take right. this kind of fairy tale it, right. beauty and innocence and uh, corrupt it. And mm-hmm. you know, that's powerful. It's a very powerful uh, image. And when you draw as well as Carousette or uh, Loiselle do, I mean, it really has more impact. Carousette uh, has another book out. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing the name. My French is terrible, okay? Uh, is called Beauty, published by uh, NBM. And this is another fairy tale. It's written by a scenarist named Hubert. Uh, and in this, ugly girl uh, finds a. a um, you know, fairy that turns her into uh, the world's most beautiful girl, but only as others see her. She still sees herself as as ugly, and her beauty is so overcoming that it destroys the kingdom. You know, brings nothing but ruin on her house. You know, brings nothing but personal attacks and violence to her. And of course, you know, it's a little ironic fairy tale of be careful what you wish for. Mm-hmm. So um, that, that sounds particularly 
topical. Ah, uh, well, yes. Right, right now, um, there there have been a lot of concerns, and if if you don't mind diverging a little sure. bit, sure. Um, there's there's been a lot going on lately as uh, as as the comics field diversifies, right. Um, right? Where there is pushback against women creators, uh, people of color, they're they're seen well, I, sometimes as interlopers. Well, I have to say, um, I know we're talking about that. Uh, idiotic movement that should not be named because it is like standing in the mirror and saying Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary. But um, well, and then tell us about the movement, even if we don't name it yes. for those well, who essentially over the summer. Oh my God, <laughs> I don't even know. Basically, uh, a woman named Anita Sarkeesian has been doing a series of videos pointing out right. that there are sexist images in video games. Now. Uh, yeah. That is not too hard to argue with by any sane and rational person, but we're not talking about sane and rational people. So she's had death threats right. over this. Right. And, right. Uh, you know, she recently had her address posted and death threats. So she had to leave her home. You know, she's been driven from her home. And other, other female game developers have had uh, threats against them. You know, phony stories about their sexual history has been told. They've been doxxed, which is putting their personal information on the internet. And a movement sprang up called um, Gamergate. We're just saying it. We're not printing it. <laughs> uh, and the reason we don't want to print it is anytime you do, people start trolling you, uh, abusing you online. Yep. And, uh, you know, it's like a pack of uh, urchins or scavengers or whatever. And they claim that their goal is to reveal the crooked world of video game journalism uh, mm. and that journalists are being paid off by uh, game developers and game publishers and this is the truth and anyone who says it isn't is a censor, is a dirty censor. Now, however, the net effect of what they've done is to threaten women with violence, threaten them with rape, uh, try to get video games, any kind of more multicultural influence in video games branded as, um, <laughs> you know, oppression. I, I mean, mm. it is the most twisted and annoying thing. <laughs> so so has this really crept into comics? Because I've, I've seen some mentions of it from the comics people yeah. I know. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, right, I don't right. know the extent well, of it. Well, they tried a few weeks ago. They tried a few weeks ago to have a hashtag uh, comic gate or comics gate. Um, at first, mm -hmm. they couldn't decide which it was, so that became a little <laughs> difficult. Either I, comics or comic, comic gate, okay. right? Right. And I mean, I even got letters. You know, you know, as well as working for Publishers Weekly, I run my own site uh, called the Beat uh, at comicsbeat.com, and uh, you know, I've been doing it for ten years. It is uh, one of the very few, I will say, um, commercial comic book sites owned and run by a woman. And, uh, you know, I had a DDoS attack earlier the year, like just a few months ago, a pretty severe one, uh, which for those who don't know is when somebody sends so many requests to your site that it takes it down. And I mean, I don't know. I don't know why that happened. You know, was right. it a coincidence? Probably. Mm -hmm. I've never had an attack that severe before, though. So, um, so you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, this, this uh, you know, there's a lot of things in the air. So they tried to get Comic Gate going, and I got some warning letters saying, you don't want to mess with this. These are the worst people on Earth. And, I mean, they are, the people behind Gamergate are so pernicious that mm. they have been banned from 4chan, and, which is the no-holds-anything-barred 
uh, end of the internet, and they've had to go off to their own thing called 8chan. And you know, you got to be pretty bad to get to get banned from 4chan. Right. Um, it's, it's like being kicked out of a dive bar. Like, really? What did yeah, you? What did well, you do? I, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's not even like you know. Yes, uh, it's as bad as it gets <laughs> right, on right. the internet. You know, this is yeah. the lowest of the low. So, um, so yes, there has been this comic gate thing going on. Uh, it has. It hasn't taken hold yet. I'm knocking on wood, um, you know, for my own sake, for all my friends' sake, my colleagues' sake, for comics' sake. Um, so I think I think we're in a better place. I think we are. I think there are, as much as we complain about women in comics, I think there's a lot more women who are really well-established in the comics industry uh, than are established in the video game industry. So I think there, and I think mm. we have more fans. Yes. You know, I think that's the big difference. I think that fans the, who are both men and women. Yeah. I think that there's, that there's just a wider readership right now. And I know you had Calvin Reed on, uh, last, last week, week and, and right. he was talking about New York comic con and, and some of the demographic information that's been coming out. And, um, you know, it is a fact that m- the biggest group that plays video games as a single demographic is uh, women over 40. Because they play games on their phone, and they play Bejeweled, and they play other games, too. My mother plays Warcraft, okay? My mother's a woman in her 70s, and she plays Warcraft. Uh, She actually plays those Chinese Warcraft knockoffs. Um, But (laughs) anyway, you know, my, my mother is a gamer. Uh, And so women, of course, play a lot of video games. But they don't get so passionate about Candy Crush Saga, you right. know. I mean, they're we, they're not dressing up like no. candy and going to. <laughs> well, <laughs> going I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe they do. That would be pretty fun. Maybe I would. That, that's I play Candy Crush Saga. I actually like Bubble Witch Two Saga better. But um, <laughs> anyway, um, I, I think I think that that this is a silent. The women who play games, uh, the the most. Uh, populist, the most numerous women who play games are silent consumers. You know, they are not the kind of highly vocal nerd geek, um, you know, subculture right. that goes on. So I think the gaming subcultures tend to be uh, a little bit. They're still very male centric. They're still very much based around that whole, you know, lone shooter, <laughs> one person shooter. Right. Um, you know, aesthetic. I mean, not to brand all gamers, but, um, you know, there was, uh, when Sarkeesian went to talk at the University of Utah, she was threatened, uh, a man said, a somewhat, a man, someone sent a letter threatening the, a massacre to, to rival uh, the right. one in Mount Montreal 20 years ago. And uh, they would not ban guns from mm-hmm. the, the hall because the, and was, this is like a state senator said this, like, you know, well, we can't, we can't um, disarm the good guy. So this guy would be a gamer if he were younger because he actually would rather have a firefight in the room with the good guys shooting at the bad guys than just not a, allow weapons in the room at all. So, you know, this, this attitude is pernicious. It's really at all levels of society. So anyway, I'm off on a tangent now, but, the, you know, this touches on a lot of things. And in comics, I just think that for now, we seem to be a little bit better socialized than that. Mm-hmm. And I think there are, I think comics readers' self-identification is not threatened as much for whatever reason at this point. So thank God. 
I'm, I feel like um, in some ways it's just a, a, a matter of time. Like I, I feel like the, the No Girls Allowed part of comics just came several years ago yeah. um, and, and the field's a, a little past it already. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I, Rose, I'm interested to hear you say that because you're, you know, uh, an observer from a from a you know a very intelligent viewpoint you know but you're not immersed in it as i it's am true. obviously um just yesterday we were recording our own comics podcast more to come and i compared it my metaphor is that it's been a dark cloudy sky and suddenly a br- breeze is blowing in and little patches of blue are breaking mm. through and the patches of blue are getting bigger and bigger and bigger and suddenly there's going to be a beautiful day and you know, Mary Poppins will be singing. And <laughs> little birds will be chirping. and some French fairies. Yes, French fairies. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think it has, and I think the internet did it. I think Tumblr did it. I think uh, women have always read comics. I, yes, I can't even. This is so stupid to say they don't because they do. I was reading the Fantastic Four when I was sixteen. Well, I mean, you know, this is yeah, but you know, we're even outliers. You I, know? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure. you know, the, the women have read Calvin and Hobbes, and they mm-hmm. read Archie comics, and they read, um, and they did read Spider Man, and they did read the Fantastic Four, and they did read Superman and Batman. You know, but but they've always read comics, and like. If you just say something enough, people believe it. And then Tumblr, I think, comes along and says, wow, this is not true at all. <laughs> when you give everyone equal access, yeah. it yeah. turns out that there is a very different demographic than you imagined in your head. Yeah. And also at conventions. Uh, again, I know Calvin was talking about this last week, but um, you know, when you have people who are running conventions... I just want to make money. They just will take your $40 and not question who you are, where you're from. Uh, It turns out (laughs) that your audience kind of mirrors the natural human demographic. So, Mm. All right. So I'm just curious. We've been talking about uh, uh, women in comics. Who, Who are some at the forefront right now? Uh, well, um, I mean, Roz Chast, I would have mm-hmm. to say. I right. mean, I would consider her a woman in comics, although she has not identified with one, has one for a long time, so she's been kind of free. You know, she's a very well-known cartoonist for The New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And I know a couple of years ago there was Cancer Vixen. Yes, Cancer Vixen. Um, that was Marissa Akasala right. that came out. Um, you know, she was a cartoonist for, I think, Glamour magazine. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of women who are really popular in the kids' space right now, Rayna Helgemeyer. Mm. She did the book Smile, and she just came out with a follow-up called Sisters that's mm-hmm. doing really well. Um, there's a young cartoonist named Noelle Stevenson, and she does a book called Lumberjanes that uh, is about a bunch of plucky Girl Scouts who solve mysteries, but in a very modern way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's like a huge hit. That's really Great. a Tumblr-driven hit. Uh, but she has a book coming out next year, a YA book called Nimona, that's based on her webcomic. And uh, HarperCollins is putting it out, and I think that is going to be very significant uh, when it comes out. She has a huge following on Twitter and on Tumblr, and she's just a kid. She's just gotten out of animation school. I mean, I sound patronizing. She's amazing. She's 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 the real deal. I've, um, I've seen a lot of uh, female fantasy authors, particularly um, making inroads into comics. Genevieve Valentine is mm-hmm. writing comics That's now. Right. That's Marjorie right. Liu. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Kay Perkins. I think she's also a uh, YA novelist. Um, so, yeah, a lot of that crossover is definitely happening. Um, and I think, I think, uh, 
I, I don't know. I hope someday when billions of dollars aren't on the uh, table, I could talk to people at Marvel and DC. I think they must have just run some numbers and found out that it was okay <laughs> to promote female characters. <laughs> um, there's a book right. at, at DC now, Harley Quinn. Right. which takes this classic character from the animation and really reimagines her as this kind of Bugs Bunny, crazy character who just does loony things. Um, the stories are co-written by Amanda Connor, who's a very well-known um, female cartoonist of kind of the superhero. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the book is the number two book at DC after Batman. I mean, it's wow. one of the best-selling books. And uh, so, you know, money talks, hopefully. Uh, Batgirl also just got re- relaunched. And, you know, it's kind of a, a symbol. It's a little trendy. You know, she's like a... <laughs> I was going to say she eats kale, but no. She's, <laughs> she, she's wearing <laughs> yellow Doc Martens, which... Uh, and, you know, I've noticed. I mean, I was around for the Riot Girl movement of the 90s, and everybody wore Doc Martens. And I remember me and my friend Mar- Mariah Huner, who writes... Um, uh, comics. She she did some True Blood comics and uh, other other kind of horror comics, and uh, we were both looking for comfortable shoes, and we couldn't find any. And Doc Martens were totally out of fashion, and now they're back, back. in fashion. Yep. And now women are on the ascendant. So I don't. I think the things are tied in. Either when Doc Martens are in fashion, women are on the rise. <laughs> well, I remember Doc Martens from the early mid-80s, actually. That's right, which was yep. also another time. Another time? Yes, yes exactly. Yes. So uh, it's definitely yep. something. It's, it's tied in, yeah. yeah. So this is like stocks and hemlines, mm-hmm. only uh, ah, right, know, right. women in comics and Doc Martens. <laughs> well, well, we'll keep an eye on the footwear <laughs> to, so, we, uh, so that we know what to expect yeah, there you going go. forward. Well, thank you very much, Heidi. It's, All right. Uh, it's good to be kept up to date on uh, on what's going on. Always a pleasure, you guys. Uh, look forward to coming back. All right, anytime, Great. anytime. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Patrick Swenson, author of The Ultra Thin Man, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Myra Kalman, author of My Favorite Things. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes. Available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story and your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 